Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Can we have sound media that is ecologically sound? Can we fine-tune our media production and consumption habits to a greener key? How can environmental perspective on sound media contribute to our understanding of how media culture is involved in the ecological crisis? These are just some of the questions Jacob Smith is trying to answer in his latest book, Ecosonic Media, published by University of California Press in 2015. Chapter 1 looks at the history of the phonograph and the shift from using biodegradable plastics such as shellac to the now omnipresent use of vinyl, one of the most toxic plastics in use. Chapter 2 explores the role birds have in sound media. The focus is mostly on canaries and their complicated relationship with the humans who bred them to provide sonic entertainment to 19th century middle class Western families. In Chapter 3, Divination machines, such as Geiger counters, reveal a subterranean history of local space and their potential to expose unheard archaeological layers. Radio's potential to represent spatial and temporal ends of the world reimagines radio pieces such as Orson Welles' War of the Worlds or Ray Bradbury's There Will Come Soft Rains as it was read by Leonard Nimoy, as pieces of echosonic poetics. Finally, in the last chapter of the book, we are invited to imagine ways to reform practically and ideologically so that we actually survive the ecological crisis. Jacob Smith is a professor in the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the Northwestern University's School of Communication. He wrote on the phonograph culture in post-war America, on performance and sound media, amongst many others. Ecosonic media brings an ecological critique to the history of sound media technologies and contributes with an environmental perspective to the field of sound studies. This book is more than a methodological and a theoretical exploration. It's a project that looks for affirmative answers. Let's see what that means and let's welcome Jacob to a new episode of New Books in Sound Studies, a podcast series hosted by the New Books Network and the Center for Media, Data and Society at the Central European University. I'm your host, Dumitrica Holdish. Welcome, Jacob, and thanks a lot for joining us today. Let's start uh, with the first question, and my first question is on methods. What is the up, down, and sideways methodology you are using to look at sound media and its ecological potential? 
I got the idea of the up, down, and sideways methodology from a book called Greening the Media by Richard Maxwell and Toby Miller. And the idea is that, um, you know, if you're going to start thinking about media culture in the context of the environmental crisis, it's it's a complicated issue and that it's going to need, you can't just do, say, textual analysis alone, probably, you know, in the up, down, and sideways method. Uh, you're going to need to think about production and resources, the resources that go into creating the devices themselves and distribution. And not only that, but disposal, what happens to these devices and uh, formats after they're thrown away, as well as reception and text. So that was kind of the challenge that that book, Greening the Media, gave to me. You know, how do you do an up, down and sideways um, analysis of the media? So I, I found that to be a productive challenge. You know, it made me start, since I work on sound media, it made me start asking questions like, what are records made of? And what happens when they're thrown away? Um, how are they used? Uh, in, in addition to questions that maybe I'd, had been more familiar to me, like, uh, you know, what are the poetics of sound texts and things like that? So um, that was the prompt that got me started in the book. And in a way, my book, Ecosonic Media, is an attempt to do that kind of up, down, and sideways. Each chapter is kind of looking at a different facet of sound media culture. Uh, and then in my conclusion, I add an in and an out to Maxwell and Miller's up, down, and sideways. So I, I tried to add a little something to their discussion as well. And uh, I was wondering, um, while reading the book, Uh, I mean, I know you are, you know, a sound media scholar and you're looking at sound media technologies and practices from an eco-critical perspective. And I don't want to, you know, jump and say, why not look at another medium? But but I was wondering rather how does the medium allow for certain media consum consumption practices to exist? So what I'm asking is, is audio special? Right. Yeah. What's why sound? Why write about exactly. um, ecology and sound? I mean, the first answer is that's what I do, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, I mean, so I'm like many people that are concerned about the ecological crisis. Um, I think everybody, a lot of scholars feel like they want to make their discipline accountable. You know, what is it? How can I think about my field and my discipline in relation to this set of really important problems and issues? So that was what I did. You know, I work on sound media. So how can I make this accountable? But besides that, I mean, I, across the book, I found some reasons why audio might have some special or, uh, you know, unique attributes to bring to bear here. Uh, it's potentially low energy, you know, not always, but it could be, you know, compared to the energy costs of powering big screens. Uh, radio, for example, uses a lot less energy. It's more portable. You know, I give some examples of portable sound production. Um, so it can be kind of what Nadia Bozak calls a secondhand cinema, something that's very portable and lightweight and uh, can move easily. Uh, and, you know, as somebody that does history, uh, I was interested in doing what I called a green media archaeology, looking in the past for sound media technologies that might have clues for new kinds of designs in the present. And one example was no wattage phonography, you know, the era of early, early sound uh, recording technology that would require no electricity at all. The mm -hmm. playback would be spring wound, uh, recording would be driven by weight pulley motors, things like that. So 
as a technology, it, it, I found some interesting alternatives. And then in terms of the poetics of sound, there were some interesting possibilities. Um, you know, if you're telling stories only in sound, a lot of critics who have written about the poetics of radio or sound narrative have pointed out that it's a medium where you can make non-human presences um, uh, available to listeners in a powerful way. You can have characters that are plants or that are ideas or concepts in a way that on the stage might be hokey and goofy or uh, uh, in, in film might require huge uh, CGI special effects budgets. So I, I found that to be a compelling reason that telling stories in sound could be have kind of an eco-critical edge. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, there's this beautiful heritage of people working in sound and writing about sound that are also, I think, kind of forward thinking about the environment. So I wrote about, you know, Armory Schaefer's ideas about the soundscape and about radical radio. In a way, um, there's been an environmental awareness hardwired into sound studies from the very beginning. So I kind of wanted to draw that out and celebrate it. Yeah, you you actually do mention this in the I think the last chapter, no, when you're you're talking about uh, radio's dark dark ecology. Uh I found that very compelling actually the 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 use of imagination when you're listening as opposed to when, you know, you have to um make people watch the same content. Yeah, I got I got interested in um the kind of interplay between kind of say human media consumers and the energy that they would put into the experience versus what the the apparatus would be putting into the experience so yeah I, that's interesting i hadn't thought about that but what people usually say about radio drama is that it's a theater of the imagination listeners are are, are particularly kind of activated and contributing to the experience in a certain way and I found that dynamic happening also in, say, early phonography, where listeners had to be kind of physically active, cranking yeah. uh, the spring <laughs> to get it moving and things like that. And so that was a terrain I wanted to explore. Yeah. And, and somehow in the same way, also in the chapter you just mentioned, the uh, first chapter on the phonograph, it was quite interesting when you were describing how uh, in the early days of the phonograph, the singers would have to, you know, most of the power of the sound would come from their voices because it wasn't enhanced electronically. And that even that underlines so well our our limits as well. Yeah, I call that wind-powered phonography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, yeah. the early era of um, the record industry, people call it the acoustic era because it's before radio microphones, before amplification, electronic amplification. So it really is just the sheer muscle power, breath power of singers. And and so it was a nice, for me, it was a nice way of thinking about how an up-down and sideways eco-critical perspective on what had been a kind of a familiar historical account of the early phonograph industry all of a sudden felt a little different. And um, some of those performance styles took on different meaning, different performers kind of stood out maybe than would have before. Yeah. And so somehow related to that, to this, to this idea of how we produce media, my next question is actually related to that because media production is a recurrent point of interest in your book, uh, much more than distribution is. You're looking quite in depth at the history of the phonograph, for example, its invention, its materiality. This, this led me to think about how we are now so removed from the production process as consumers, and we have become even more removed as, as media infrastructure becomes bigger and faster, and the process becomes less environmentally sound. 
So could you talk a little bit about this process of losing touch, somehow very literally, with media production and its increased negative impact on the environment? And why does media production take precedence over distribution in your analysis? Uh, I tend to focus on media production in part because of my training. So I, I, I'm somebody that's um, trained in, in media studies, media history, but also performance studies. So I can never get too far away from performance and what uh, you know producers are doing, say, in the studio. Uh, but I wanted to balance that in this book uh, to, to keep the texts and the performers in the mix, but also think about things like you know, the labor that went into making the plastic that allowed those performers to, you know, distribute their records. So I guess the focus on the pre the preference for production is partly uh, just my disciplinary training. But I like your point about how there there's something to be gained by coming back to the materiality of the production process. And I had a, a great example of that in my class last week. So I teach a course on the history of recording technology. And some of the students that take it are, you know, uh, very experienced sound producers. We have a master's program at Northwestern in sound arts and industries. And so some of the students take that class. And um, on the first week, I'll show them one of these very minimal examples of how you know, small the technology can be to play back sound. So there are these missionary groups that make these cardboard um, flaps. They call them card talk. And it's basically one piece of cardboard with a needle on the end. And you put a record on the cardboard and fold it in a certain way and then turn the record yourself and stick the needle in and it plays back. And I showed uh, my students this in class. And after class, you know, I had a, a couple of people come up that were, you know, longtime audio producers there. They've spent hours and hours and hours working on computers with digital audio workstations. And one one guy said, you know, I, I've been working on this my whole life and I've never been so <laughs> surprised as when this little piece of cardboard started playing back the sound. How is this possible? You know, so and this is something one, you, you made, right? I have made them. Yeah. yeah. So you, if you go online, if you search online for things like the Flapaphone or uh, Card Talk, you can see instructions. And in my book, I have instructions as well. Uh, they're a lot of fun. And 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 so one answer to your question is is about wonder. Uh, it's it's one of those things when we're so used to being able to manipulate sound, play around with recorded sounds. Uh, that's that's a great thing. It's beautiful that if that people are so used to being active in their sound culture uh, and be uh, active creators in it. But I think it also kind of blinds us to the materiality and the wonder of that. And so some of these early technologies and thinking about the materiality of what's actually required can can provide a certain wonder that's useful. And then from a kind of an eco critical perspective that wonder can be a springboard to then thinking comparatively about different kinds of sound media culture. So we, we've become uh, acclimated to this idea that, you know, digital files and digital sounds exist in this kind of eternal immaterial plenitude floating around in some cloud somewhere. But of course we learned that, no, there are huge energy costs for keeping data centers going mm -hmm. and that there's still a, a big ecological footprint to drive that kind of uh, digital experience of sound. And so thinking about other ways of encountering recorded sound, uh, I think can be a useful comparative exercise. 
Yeah, I was actually thinking quite a lot about this um, while I was reading the book about how um, there is this mystification around technology. Everything looks so impossible and unreachable and something beyond our competence. Um, and then I thought, you know, we we are completely, at least in our imagination, disempowered. You know, we don't think we can produce anything. Hmm. Yeah, it's true uh, that on the one hand, um, some of the skills of audio production become the barriers to getting there have really fallen. And I think that's great. You know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. in my master's program in sound arts. It's a generation of people who have grown up with GarageBand on mm -hmm. their laptops. Editing and playing around with sound is absolutely second nature. And I think that's great. But maybe what's fallen into the background are, yeah, the material infrastructures upon which that kind of free play with uh, audio techs, uh, what, what that relies upon. Um, this is a very inter, uh, it's a very mediated relationship we, we have with, with um, um, audio digital technology. But you argue that um, in your book that ecosonic media has huge, huge potential to connect us to non-human nature, but also to our local environment. So we can learn together with canaries, as you describe in, in chapter two of your book, and we can listen to the past history of the places we inhabit. So sound has an evocative quality. It's used for divination, uh, as in the case of the metal detectors. And um, so it's a lot of work of guessing and imagining and contact, like direct contact to, to non-human nature. I'm just wondering if this this way of knowing, of, of guessing and imagining, and, and uh, there are approximate ways of knowing. And I was wondering if this is a shortcoming of sound or... Is this what makes it useful when interacting with nature and history and space? That's a really interesting question. Um, I guess one way to start is is um, you, one of the things you're talking about is is the stuff I wrote on on divination, yes, and exactly. and metal detectors and Geiger counters. And one of the things I wanted to do there is you know one thing that that um, is maybe distinctive or a particular strength of sound media is that it's very portable. You know, it's not encumbered by a screen. Your eyes aren't occupied um, somewhere else. And this means that, you know, with headphones, it's uh, you can move around in the world. So sound, you know, one big, big hot topic in sound right now is augmented reality. And sound in, in many ways has been a, a pioneer in, in augmenting our world, whether that's the Sony Walkman uh, in the 1980s, even before that, transistor radios, portable phonographs, sound walks by people like Janet Cardiff, right, that are kind of having this sonic overlay of information as you're moving through a particular space. So I wanted to give that kind of more of an ecosonic spin, an eco-critical spin. And that's what led me to not to the same story that we've heard about Walkman and about creating a soundtrack to your everyday life and not uh, writing more about, you know, an artist like Janet Cardiff. But thinking about a, um, a family of devices that are divination devices, these, this kind of culture of metal detector hobbyists and Geiger counter hobbyists who are using sound and the portability of sound media, not to create a soundtrack to their lives as they commute to work, but in this funny way as a way of connecting them to the non-human environment and to their local place. So that was, you know, kind of the larger intervention, I guess you'd say, with with 
what people have been writing about sound media uh, to give it a kind of eco-critical spin. I like what you're saying about the signals that I'm talking about there being kind of approximate. Is what you mean by that, that, um, you know, compared to somebody who's got a, uh, an iPod or a Walkman that are listening to these very rich sonic texts, somebody that's walking around with a metal detector, they're getting these very kind of small signals, beeps and yeah. things like that. Is that what you meant by the yeah, approximate? I will, yeah, exactly. I was, I was thinking about, yeah, exactly the way we are now obsessed with um, uh, high fidelity, like with reproducing everything in, in, in high fidelity and knowing in very exact terms, in very measured ways, what we're listening to. And on the other hand, I was even thinking about how now we explore the underworld, let's say, like the subterranean uh, space with very exact tools. We want to know everything in the in its smallest detail. And I right. feel and I feel like sometimes this actually makes us kind of lose the perspective. Yeah, well, that's that's a really good point. And I, I tried to make there's, you know, a couple of times in the book where I push back on the assumption that the industry, you know, the say the recorded sound industry is often pushed, which is that, you know, where it's a drive towards more fidelity, more fidelity. And again, a kind of eco critical poetics maybe shifts the criteria a bit. You know, what if high fidelity isn't the most important factor here? What if the cracks and the hisses in those old shellac discs are doing something interesting? But from the divination side, uh, maybe one way to address that would be um, I start that history with divination rods, and which is, you know, would probably strike a lot of people as being kind of a quirky choice. <laughs> but in a way, you know, this twig that's that's bent in a certain way, and then people are walking around and feeling the tug, and um, you know, it's pointing towards water or minerals under the ground. That practice for me was interesting as as what I call a minimal medium. So if if media is always, you know, it's partly the technology, but it's also these practices and a whole culture, a whole way of thinking about the world. I was drawn towards these example where the technological part of it is very, very small, maybe just even a twig. Or in the chapter on canaries, it's just a whistle. It's kind of very, very minimal. The um, resource uh, footprint is incredibly small. But then it's still kind of working as a medium it's still working to if you're a practitioner it's still connecting you to your environment it's still kind of a a medium an intermediary between you and a whole body of cultural lore and stories about treasure hunting and and what you understand about your local environment it's still functioning as a medium uh but the technological part of it is is minimal and so i think that maybe that's part of the approximate part of it that you're that you're pulling out Mm-hmm. that um i'm i'm interested in that so even when you get to the metal detector hobbyists in some ways it's still this kind of minimal medium it's not giving a really rich detailed high fidelity picture of what's going on um beneath the ground um but in in a way that's what interested me but you still see this mm-hmm. overlay of all these other aspects of yeah. medium you know these tales about <laughs> pirate treasure mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the practitioners have to do all this research about their local places and looking at old maps and finding. So it's it's kind of reactivating the cultural geography around them and creating a sense of the local. I really enjoyed reading the um, chapter on radio. 
although it made me uh, feel a bit post-apocalyptic, just a little bit. Also, <laughs> I was listening to, I was listening then to all the um, the broadcasts you were mentioning. Tell us a little bit about this uh, capacity radio has to force us into confronting the ecological crisis we are living through. Yeah, well, it, you know, what in the up, down and sideways methodology, this was the chapter where I kind of got to more familiar territory, which was text, kind of textual analysis. You know, if there's a chapter about infrastructure, there's a chapter about communication with non-humans, about portability, place and planet. This was maybe a more familiar kind of textual analysis. What can texts do? How can we think about sound text as being eco-critical? And for me, for in this chapter, I think there's not one way, but for me in this chapter, it was when they focus on, depict environmental crisis in one way or another. And one of the places I started was with this Mercury Theater Orson Welles broadcast of Hell on Ice, because there was kind of a polar theme throughout the chapter. But you know, as to your question, what can sound do in terms of apocalypse? It is kind of notable that maybe the most famous radio broadcast of all time is about the end of the world. The Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast, which is so famous. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a point of dialogue throughout this chapter. So I guess, you know, it, it didn't have to be that way. But there's been this interesting connection between radio drama and apocalyptic themes. And I think that has something to do with what we talked about before, which is that um, sound media can depict really vast and kind of cataclysmic things without a big um, special effects budget. So there are certain themes and ideas that sound can depict in a way that's manageable for producers. And so the end of the world is one, you know, planets exploding and, and such, uh, depicting different kinds of life that are sentient and communicating, you know, so there's this potential for a kind of a dialogue between humans and non-humans, aliens and uh, humans. Um, so science fiction and horror have been important genres in the history of, uh, of radio drama and darkness. So that was one thing I was drawn to. And that's one of the reasons that you get these, you know, um, maybe it's notable that the, the works of somebody like H.P. Lovecraft, who is drawn to these kind of dark more than human, uh, unspeakable kind of characters and scenes and and beings. Uh, it, it, the 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 you know the the biggest adaptation of that work has been in audio. So I think sound has a a potential for telling certain kinds of stories that maybe hasn't even been that potential hasn't even been fully explored from a new kind of environmental uh, or apocalyptic uh, post-apocalyptic world that we kind of live in now, where people are thinking about a different kind of. Uh, uh, ecological or end of the world kind of crisis. So let's then move a bit towards the last chapter of your book that really brings it together. It's it's almost like an attempt to work through your arguments by going through the motions of building media like you did with the phonograph or uh, when you were interacting with nature and with the history of your local environment, you were going around the northwestern campus with a metal detector, you're producing radio shows and, and, and hosting listening groups. How did this all help you um, build your ideas or your analysis? You know, I've written books before this one, and there's a real formula for what you do in a conclusion. It was a challenge, and I don't know if I fully pulled it off, but when I got to the end of this 
this project and you know thinking up down and sideways about these things it just felt like it needed it it the subject demanded more than just a kind of an abstract theoretical conclusion i didn't know exactly how to do that but that's kind of where the in and out came from so if there i'd been doing an up down and sideways methodology i added an in which is kind of an you know an inward self-reflective phenomenological component and an out which I was thinking about, you know, collaboration with other people uh, and also teaching, you know, how can how can this become something that's not just a, a um, an intellectual exercise? How can I lay the groundwork for some practical collaborative ways to get some of these quirky ideas off the page and into the world? And so, yeah, for each chapter, I tried to think of projects that I could do, um, whether that was build my own minimal phonograph machine or uh, interact with one of these roller canaries that I've been writing about uh, or, you know, take a walk and think about the way sounds and signals might connect me to a local environment. So I did some of these things and wrote about them uh, in a more of an experiential phenomenological way. And I tried to, uh, you know, map out here are some of the things that I, I got out of taking this different approach. And it really did, you know, make me ask different kinds of questions. You know, just as a scholar, I ended up visiting different kinds of archives, going to the Billy Graham Missionary Archive, you know, which I never would have uh, thought about before. Um, talking to different kinds of people, collectors, hobbyists, enthusiasts, who had, you know, this very specific knowledge about the things that I've been thinking about, but, you know, weren't scholars, you know, this wasn't going to a conference and sharing my ideas. And I found that to be useful, actually, um, uh, asking different questions, thinking along different tracks. So, you know, I don't know if that final chapter is is 100% successful, but in a way, that's okay. I, I meant the chapter to be kind of messy. That's why I did that comparison between like the, uh, you know, the kind of perfect ending of the record, the Sgt. Pepper record with the, you know, the beautiful <laughs> symphonic kind of ah, yes, perfect, it's over. And then the really messy kind mm -hmm. of looped uh, ending. So I meant it to be a little messy, but um, uh, in a way it became a springboard to this this new project I'm working on, which is also, uh, it kind of made me think about other kinds of academic production besides just writing books and articles. So please tell us about your, your, your new project. I got this a little sneak preview, but uh, I'm sure everybody else wants to know about it now. Yeah, well, in a way, I think I'm working along similar lines as you and your your podcast, which is you know thinking about um, advancing academic discussions, discourses through sound, and that's been something that that me and my colleague Neil Verma at Northwestern we've been really keen to think about. We want to think about how to do how to work and talk about sound in sound through sound. So I decided to take the plunge, and um, this new project that I'm writing uh, is going to be both a book on a university press, but also a podcast, a 10-part podcast. My new project is called ESC, like the escape key on your mm -hmm. keyboard, ESC, and it's about this classic series of post-war, from the late 40s, early 50s, um, adventure show. Uh, it was an adventure anthology series called Escape. So you see what I'm doing there. It's uh -huh. ESC. It's like a digital reboot <laughs> of this classic show Escape. But my version is ESC, like the escape key. And it's 
thinking about this kind of classic era of, of radio, and, you know, it really is this peak of radio storytelling, beautiful, self-contained audio art. So it's just striking as sound art. But I wanted to put that in dialogue with another kind of sound art, which is current field recordings. Uh, so, you know, if I would have kept on writing Ecosonic Media, I would have added a chapter about this wonderful work that's being done by many sound artists who are taking, you know, kind of that idea that sound is very portable. And they've been going out in the field and um, recording non-human environments and uh, doing all this beautiful work. And I wanted to find a way to kind of put some of that cutting edge digital um, sound art in dialogue with this earlier era of sound storytelling. And so that's one of the things I do in these podcasts. Mm -hmm. So it's a 10 part podcast, each one about a different episode of Escape, but it weaves in not only analysis of um, these stories, but also brings them into dialogue with kind of contemporary environmental issues and sound artists who are working uh, in those areas. And how was it to work with both text and audio for this project? Did it inform, did they inform each other or did you feel like you're in two completely different spheres? It's been really amazing, actually. It's been uh, a fascinating exercise, both for me and for the, my editor at the University Press, because it's, it's definitely a different way of approaching academic writing. So for me, you know, I ended up writing a first draft of the book and then using that as a script for the podcasts, you know, for my voiceover and the podcast, mm -hmm. but boy, it really changes. And that was one thing I really wanted to happen when you're, I, there were lots of ideas and things that would synthesize and new insights and revelations that would come about through the sound part by working in sound. It made me think about the topics in different ways. So there's an interesting kind of push and pull between writing the text and then translating that into sound and bringing some of the sounds into dialogue with these other sound artists. Um, so there were definitely, you know, I had to go back and change the text because there were so many things that changed or new ideas that, that occurred to me in the course of working uh, in sound. You know, our experience here has been that, you know, the emergence of the podcast in the past decade or so as this really powerful sonic form and a, a really powerful kind of, of way of communicating ideas and news and analysis that this is really ripe for sound studies scholars. It's a way to communicate ideas, popularize um, uh, academic discourses. That's a great opportunity to reach people where they are. Uh, and it, just in the classroom, we found that students, um, you know, you give them a reading and you'll be lucky if they read it all the way through. You give them mm -hmm. the same content, the same ideas in the form of a podcast, and they'll listen to it from beginning to end and ask you for more. Yeah. It just kind of we it weaves into people's lives in a really uh, excellent way. And you can communicate all kinds of things. You can bring a kind of an emotional, effective dimension to the analysis in a way that I think is exciting. So um, I'm really, uh, I think it's a great uh, frontier to explore. The big preview of the, the, the escape project, I think, is, is where uh, I am now. Then we're looking forward to having you back uh, in about a year when we get to read your book and listen to your podcasts. That would be great. Yeah. And thanks a lot for spending time with us here on the New Books in Sound Studies podcast. Hope to have you back soon. Thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. Thank you.
And thanks to our listeners for their attention. Goodbye.